Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Thursday, April 23rd. In today's news, economists expect a W-shaped recovery. President Trump's immigration order contains broad exceptions. And Iran's Revolutionary Guard is using this contagion to consolidate power. But first, the big idea. Governors rushing to reopen their economies are probably making a deadly mistake. By the end of this week, residents in Georgia will be able to get their hair permed and their nails done. By Monday, they'll be cleared for action flicks at the Cineplex and burgers at their favorite greasy spoon. But experts, math models, and frankly, the basic rules that govern infectious diseases all tell us that this will almost certainly lead to a spike in coronavirus infections and deaths. As several states, including South Carolina, Tennessee, and Florida, rush to reopen, the sudden relaxation of restrictions will supply new targets for the virus that has kept the country largely at bay. The vast majority of Americans are still believed to be uninfected, making them like dry kindling on a forest floor. Barring a vaccine or other treatment, the virus will keep burning until it runs out of fuel. Models suggest the best strategy for keeping the burn rate under control is to drive the number of infections as low as possible before restoring economic activity. This would provide time to react if cases flare. Several new studies have emerged in the past 72 hours that are changing scientific understanding of how this invisible enemy spreads among us. A growing body of research suggests that the virus is most contagious in people before they develop a fever or even feel a tickle in their throat. This suggests that silent spreaders are seeding new cases as we speak. Given the dangers involved in reopening, what states desperately need are a warning system and suppression tool to prevent infections from cresting again into the deadly peaks that we saw in March and April. But states are jumping into their experiments without the two tools deployed by almost every other advanced nation, massive testing and contact tracing. In fact, according to multiple models, Georgia is one of the last states that should be reopening. It's had more than 830 COVID-19 deaths and tested fewer than 1% of its residents, far lower than many other states and way below the national average. And the limited amount of testing that has been done in Georgia shows a far higher rate of positives at 23%. Even President Trump said at his White House briefing last night that he called Georgia Governor Brian Kemp to tell him that he, quote, strongly disagrees with reopening so much so fast. But then the president, who's tried to have it both ways on this issue, said he understands why Kemp's doing what he's doing and that the governor, quote, must do what he thinks is right. Here are some other new insights into the contagion that, as of this morning, has killed 46,782 of our fellow Americans, at minimum. Increasingly, doctors are reporting bizarre, unsettling cases that don't seem to follow any of the textbooks they've ever trained on. We're hearing cases of patients with startlingly low oxygen levels, so low they would normally be unconscious or near death, talking and, and swiping on their iPhones. Asymptomatic pregnant women suddenly go into cardiac arrest without warning. 
patients who by all conventional measures seem to have mild disease are deteriorating within minutes and dying in their beds. With no clear patterns in terms of age or chronic conditions, some scientists are hypothesizing that at least some of these abnormalities may be explained by severe and rapid changes in patients' blood. The concern is so acute that some key doctor groups are raising the controversial possibility of giving preventive blood thinners to everyone diagnosed with COVID-19, even those who seem well enough to endure their illness at home. Blood clots, in which the red liquid inside us turns more gel-like, appear to be the opposite of what occurs in Ebola, dengue, and other hemorrhagic fevers that lead to uncontrolled bleeding. But actually, they're part of the same phenomenon, and they can have similarly devastating consequences. Autopsy reports of those who have succumbed to coronavirus show that some people's lungs are filled with hundreds of microclots, errant blood clots of a larger size in the lungs can break off and then travel into the heart or to the brain, causing strokes and heart attacks. In other chilling news, New York's largest hospital system reports today that 88% of coronavirus patients who have been put on ventilators did not make it. A paper being published in the journal JAMA suggests a reality that, like so much else about this virus, confounds our early expectations. The New York researchers found that 20% of all of those hospitalized died, a finding that's similar to the percentage who perish in normal times when they're admitted for respiratory distress. But the numbers diverge more for the critically ill put on the ventilators. 88% of the 320 COVID-19 patients on ventilators who were tracked in this study succumbed. That compares with the roughly 50% death rate that some critical care doctors had optimistically hoped for when these cases were first being diagnosed. This new JAMA paper also shows that of those who have died, 57% had hypertension, 41% were obese, and 34% had diabetes. No surprises there. That's consistent with the risk factors listed by the CDC. But noticeably absent from that list is asthma. As doctors have learned more about COVID-19, they believe that asthma plays less of a dominant role in outcomes than they did a few weeks ago. One other super surprising finding from this new study is that 70% of the patients who were sick enough to be admitted to the hospital for coronavirus did not have a fever at all. Fever is currently listed by the CDC as the top symptom of COVID-19. For weeks, many testing centers for the virus have been turning away patients if they didn't have a fever. But now it turns out that a majority of people with the coronavirus may not have a fever at all. This is why ramping up testing is so critically important. Finally, some additional new information from Ground Zero. Two New York house cats have tested positive for the coronavirus. Both pets are expected to recover after showing symptoms of mild respiratory illness. And experts say there's still no evidence that house pets are transmitting the virus to humans. But here's the scary part. One cat is owned by a person who tested positive for the coronavirus before the cat showed any signs. But the other cat, who got really sick, lives in a household where no members have confirmed cases of the virus. 
It's possible that cat was infected by a household member who was only mildly ill or asymptomatic and never realized they had the virus. Scientists say whether an animal can be infected depends on a receptor on certain cells that the virus needs to be able to unlock. Some species have better fits. There's more evidence that points to cats being uniquely susceptible. A preliminary study of blood samples from 102 stray shelter and pet cats in Wuhan, China, found that about 15% of them were infected with the virus. A laboratory experiment in which scientists introduced the virus to animals found that cats and ferrets were highly susceptible to the coronavirus, but dogs much less so. Meanwhile, overnight, another seven big cats at the Bronx Zoo tested positive for COVID-19. Medical experts say that to be safe when walking your dog, you should stay at least six feet away from other people and animals and do not let your dog play with or sniff other dogs. Obviously, cats should stay inside or be supervised. But this also goes the other way. You should not be petting other people's animals either. You should be socially distancing from them too. Even really cute puppies. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar. Number one, there are growing concerns that any economic recovery later this year could prove short-lived because of the possible deadly resurgence of the virus in the fall and a late spike in bankruptcies and defaults. It's a wicked combination that could cause households and businesses that barely survived the spring lockdown to go under later in the year. Some economists say that a W-shaped recovery is increasingly likely in part because creating a vaccine is likely to take at least a year, and millions of Americans and businesses are piling up debt without any kind of easy ability to repay it. This means the economy will start looking better, and then there will be a second downturn later this year or maybe next. It could be triggered by reopening the economy too quickly, which would lead to a second spike in deaths. This could cause many businesses, which were barely hanging on, to then close again. Many Americans could become more afraid to venture out until a vaccine is found if there's a big spike in reinfections in places like Georgia. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said yesterday that he favors forcing blue states like California, Illinois, and Connecticut to declare bankruptcy rather than giving them federal bailout money. New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy, a Democrat, said he was stunned by the Kentucky Republicans' comments, which he called completely and utterly irresponsible. New York Mayor Bill de Blasio says McConnell, quote, wants police officers to lose their jobs, firefighters to go broke, hospitals to close, and sick people to be thrown out on the street. Even New York Republican Congressman Pete King attacked the GOP leader. This is going to become a big fight later in the year as these states that have major pension obligations start to teeter on the brink of fiscal insolvency. But it's good politics for McConnell, who's up for re-election this November in the bluegrass state. Number two, Trump's order to ban immigration for 60 days is far more limited than what he announced on Twitter. The executive order, which takes effect today, will not apply to immigrants who are already living and working in the United States and are seeking to become legal permanent residents, medical professionals, farm workers, and others who enter on temporary non-immigrant visas are unaffected. And the suspension also exempts the spouses and underage children of U.S. citizens, among other carve-outs. The order also carries exemptions for members of the U.S. Armed Forces, as well as their spouses and children, 
along with wealthy investors and prospective adoptees. It will put a halt on employment-based immigration visas as well as the family-based categories for parents and siblings. The president often calls that chain migration. The measure also freezes the diversity visa lottery, another frequent Trump target, which issues about 50,000 green cards annually. Legal permanent residents who are trying to bring their spouses and kids into the country also will be unable to do so. The restrictionist nativist groups that back Trump's broader border agenda say they're disappointed that his order purportedly designed to protect U.S. jobs will have no bearing on temporary foreign workers. Trump said he's considering a subsequent order, but did not provide any details on its scope. Number three, something interesting is happening in Tehran. With the explicit support of the Supreme Leader, Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, the army, the Revolutionary Guard, and its paramilitary force have taken command of Iran's response to the pandemic, including overseeing the construction of hospitals and the strict enforcement of quarantine laws. U.S. and European intelligence officials say that the bid for greater dominance by the security branches during the crisis appears intended at least in part, to discredit President Hassan Rouhani, whose more moderate government has been faulted by the conservative hardliners for the bungled early response to the pandemic. Yesterday, Trump issued instructions to the U.S. Navy to, quote, shoot down and destroy any Iranian gunboats that harass U.S. ships. It's a threat the Pentagon says was meant to warn Iran not to repeat what they describe as a provocative encounter last week in the Persian Gulf. Finally, in the quest to finish on a lighter note, let's turn back to the home front. With high school proms canceled because of COVID-19, alternatives to the annual rite of passage are cropping up to boost the millions of disappointed teens who have been left staring at unused formal wear hanging in their closets. A Michigan theater is holding a prom on Facebook. In Virginia, a Norfolk television station asked teens to send in photos of their prom attire to put on the air. A YouTube channel hosted a virtual prom with more than 3 million views so far. And in Castle Rock, Colorado, 30 miles from Denver, the parents of one crestfallen teen pulled off something none of them would have imagined a few months ago. An elegant prom for two in the dining room. More than two months ago, Carly Castillo picked out a cream-colored gown with gold and white sparkles in anticipation of her senior prom. Promptly at 7 p.m. last Friday night, she descended the stairs in that dress, and her father presented her with a daisy wrist corsage to match his boutonniere. Then Carly and her dad, Chris, spent the night dancing to a playlist he put together with a mix of her favorite top 40 tunes and a few hits from his high school days in the 1970s. Carly's 81-year-old grandmother, Annie, cheered them on. Chris, who's 60 now, is a corporate lawyer. In 1978, he wore a lime green tuxedo to his own senior prom. Carly says she's grateful that her dad went with a black and white tux for their home prom night and left the lime green one behind. And that's The Daily 202 for Thursday, April 23rd. Thanks for listening. I'm James Holman. Stay safe. I'll talk to you tomorrow.